Welcome to the One Meal, One Workout Podcast, your new approach to food and fitness, brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. And now, here are your hosts, Aaron Butler, Don Sullivan, and Mark Cockrell. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 38 of One Meal, One Workout, and we are excited to be here today. We will have back with us Dr. Scott Leibowitz, the sleep specialist that we all know and love. Uh, sharing with us more information about how to have good sleep, health, and fitness, and all the things associated with that. But before we do that, Mark, what is this madness of which you speak? By the way, my name is Mark Cockrell. Hi, everybody. Uh, you already is- introduced yourself in the intro. Yeah. <laughs> you know, our host, Don Sullivan. Okay. Anyway, go ahead. Anyway, um, yeah, and that's Don over there. Um, Yay. I- I don't know about other people in eBay, but uh, this is something that happened to me this week that it's never happened before. But uh, the way I do eBay is I see something that's worth 150 bucks. I put a bit of $50 on it and I forget about it. I either get it or I don't. And since it's, I almost never get that, I tend to sometimes uh, do that to multiple items at once. So recently I sent Aaron a, a new electronic device that will hopefully help him in his podcasting endeavors. And I wanted to buy uh, a couple of others for other hosts. He's now showing it on the live stream for the zero people who are watching it. Uh, but uh, I or those that have gone back and watched it on Ustream because they prefer okay. to see our beautiful faces. Yes. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's the M Audio Fast Track. It's just, it's just a digital to audio converter that uh, helps plug a mic into a computer. Nothing, you know, it's geeky. Nothing you'd be generally interested in unless you're a geek. But uh, uh, I. But I bought that. It's a typically brand new. It's between $150 to $200. That's a used one. I paid, I think, $40 for it. Well, in the last week, I have won six auctions for those. So I now have six of those either in my, my possession or on their way to me because I thought, well, I'll put $40 on that one. I'll never win it. Yes, I did. I'll put $50 on that one. And I'll never win it. Yes, I did. And but so, yeah. It's a little crazy. I have things arriving at my house every day, and I'm getting a great deal because for all six of them, I, I paid maybe what I would pay for two of them. But still, um, I have a lot of them now. Awesome. That's fantastic. Apparently, not enough people were geeky enough to even trump you on the 40 bucks. Right. Yeah. Lesson learned. Well, Don, I can see you in our little video feed here, and there's something different about you today. It is this superfluous strip of fabric hanging from my throat. <laughs> i.e. this necktie and why would you be wearing a necktie it's uh, a normal or whatever you'd wear around the house <laughs> yes yes yeah, that's at least that's what everyone assumed that i was wearing because i was working from home sorry i'm trying to match the uh point of my tie up exactly <laughs> to the corner of my camera feed <laughs> accomplished okay yeah i have a new job which the reason I, I mentioned it is not because I'm such a snazzy dresser and I want people to come back and see that on the Ustream feed, um, but because I wanted to go ahead and call myself out and um, hopefully get some backup because I'm, uh, I have a new routine now. I no longer work from home. I'm actually having to drive to an office. And, wow. Uh, yes, this is a big deal for me. Well, I worked from home for three years, so yeah. you kind of get used to it. You kind of get used to not seeing people for weeks at a time. Sigh. Other than that, so uh, the other thing is that I don't have the opportunity to go running at lunch like I was doing. Like my, like I set my New Year's resolution to do to run at least once a week. Uh, I can't go out and run through uh, the projects in Waycross in a suit, in a shirt and tie, without being sweaty and sneaky. And and, and I want to have a professional, you know, demeanor. Demeanor. Thank Appearance. you appearance um so Smell. I, i'm looking for i'm looking for an alternative we're trying to and abby is interested in in helping me with that and we're trying to figure out what we can do as a family uh, but we're gonna have to figure something out so that, that i can stay active well and since i'm a we've guy i've been picking up a lot of fast food because we don't get home until 6 15 some days like today because i got out of work late and abby got out of work late and we picked up the baby and talked to the babysitter for 10 minutes and we just don't want to we don't have don't have time. How often do you hear that to go grocery shopping? We haven't grocery shopped in a month. You know, we don't have time to cook dinner. We wouldn't really, it's just that we would rather not have to be on our feet for that much longer in a day. So I'm a guy, Don, whenever somebody shares with a guy, they don't give sympathy. They give suggestions. Thank you. (laughs) They don't give empathy. They give answer answers. So let me ask this, Don, what time do you have to get up in the morning to be at work? 
6 a.m. What time do you typically go to bed at night? This week, 8 p.m. Okay, so you're shooting for 10 hours of sleep a night? Is that what you're shooting for? 10 hours of very poor sleep, yes. <laughs> so the problem Usually is... Usually with a 30-minute break at about 3 a.m. You probably need a sleep study. Um, I don't know. If we could get somebody on the show about with a sleep specialist or something, maybe we could get some help for you. But what, what's worked for me, Don, and maybe we can get your sleep, li- your sleep life worked out where you're, you're getting eight hours of restful sleep and you can go to bed like at 10 o'clock. And if the baby goes to bed at eight, whatever, I don't know, I'm making that up. Uh, I think you guys know, if you've been listening for a while, you probably know, I go run after my son goes to bed. So I usually don't run until 7.30 or 8 at night, 30, 45 minutes or an hour, and that's when I do it because that's the most convenient time and I have the least least uh, interruptions. So that's my only suggestion for you, Don, is get a sleep study. But, you know, that's not something we'll talk about today. All right. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Stay strong, man. Stay strong. Whatever we can do to help you. So, um, on the note of running in the evenings, I had a personal milestone last week, last Thursday, a week from a week ago Thursday. I ran three miles all the way through for the first time in my life. I had Woo-hoo. run a couple of miles before. I'd done several 5Ks, but I always ran and walked. I call it ru-walking. Um, and, but I actually started running at my, the beginning of my normal route and I ran the entire distance, all three miles. And I was so excited at the end of it. Um, I think since I've been injured, I've actually rehabbed my hip and my knee and my gait is better. I'm actually a little more efficient. So even though I'm not as skinny as I was at one point, I'm still working my way back down to my lowest weight. I actually more efficient on my running. And so it was pretty exciting. I, I told my wife, I said, uh, people were probably thinking, what is wrong with that guy? Cause as I, as I realized I was going to make it like the last three quarters of a mile, I was running down the road with this goofy grin on my face, like the, you know, the, the junior high guy that just got the, head shooter to, to agree to go to homecoming with him. I'm just like, ah, you know, this guy's crazy. Um, but I made it and it was awesome. Congratulations. So, um, thank you. That was a, quite a milestone for, I've been trying to do that for a year. Hooray. And a half. On a not I so that fun. came out on the sound, but sorry if it was bad. Yeah. <laughs> on a not so fun note, I was at the hospital today, uh, for work. Whoa, what happened? You were at the hospital for a meeting. And, uh, okay. we have multiple parking garages where I work and I had parked, Outside of one of the parking garages in a parking, uh, you know, a parking spot along the side of the parking garage. So I came out of the, out of my meeting about three o'clock and I noticed some concrete dust on the hood of my car. And I was like, somebody must have like, you know, swept, knocked some dust off of one of the top, uh, floors. It's seven floors of parking garage directly in front of my car. And then I see actually some little chunks like they might have scratched my paint. I walk around my car to get in the driver's side. Well, yeah, they scratched my paint with that giant piece of concrete that's laying on the ground by my car. And somebody on the second floor had rammed the tension uh, wires that pre- prevent cars from flying off the parking garage so hard that the concrete parking berm that you park against, like in the parking lot of a grocery store, they had shattered that and knocked several one and two foot pieces of it off the side of the parking garage. And one of them had landed on the hood of my car. Nice. Uh, nice. You weren't there. Oh uh, no! It could have killed somebody when it walked by, or just think if it had been up the third or fourth or fifth floor. The the real kicker is, a guy comes walking up as we're down there. I'm down there talking to the building super and waiting for the cops to come. And he says, "I saw the guy who did that." Um, and he he got out and went down the stairs like he was going to go leave a note on your car. So I didn't say anything to him. I said, "Well, did you think to get his license plate?" No. So it was a hit and run, or a hit concrete and make it fall on my car and run. Uh, I did get a police report, but here's my one possible saving grace. If you go in the parking garage, you get a ticket. And the ticket says, we're not liable for damage or theft to your vehicle while it's in our parking garage. However, if you park outside the parking garage, you don't get said ticket with said disclaimer. And the damage done to my car came from their building, from their facility. Their concrete barrier on the edge of their building failed and fell off of their building onto my car. So I fully expect them to pay for the complete repairs, if not that, at least for my deductible. If that's legal, I'm assuming it is. I have no idea. But anyway, that so was, was my, it just body damage, or did it actually damage the engine? Two inches away from shattering my front headlight. Um, but no, it was all on the hood. The hood's got a dent in it about the size of a football. Um, if, in fact, if you go on to Facebook um, and look at my recently uploaded photos, you can see a lovely picture of my hood of my car. I believe it successfully uploaded. At least my phone told me it did. So anyway, um, 
most of you guys know, just moving right along, I don't the show I don't want the show to run long. We got Dr. Leibowitz on. I'm gonna ask him everything we want to ask him. Um that I've recently cut diet drinks through a five stage plan. I've actually gotten tons of hits on the website about that whole process. There's a recent New York Times article that says uh, research is, is so it's diet soft drinks linked to risk of heart disease. Um, and some studies have suggested that the consumptions of diet drinks may be associated with type 2 di- diabetes and development of a condition known as metabolic syndrome, high blood pressure, abdominal, BD, abdominal obesity, excuse me, and other risk factors. Um, now, a 10-year study has found a link between diet drinks and cardiovascular disease. So, um, yet another negative on diet drinks. So, I'm not telling you to not drink, drink diet drinks because I drank them for a long time and I still uh, plan on probably having one occasionally going forward. But take a minute, read this article, we'll put the link in the show notes. Um, if you're that guy that's like, like me that's drinking five or six or seven or eight of them a day, you may want to consider cutting back a bit or a lot. And if you want to know how to cut back, you can just go to onemealandworkout.com Type in diet drinks in the search thing and find my post about my five-phase program, of which I am now in phase five. All right. In case you missed it, my guest host, not guest host, my, my regular host with me today, as always, I don't want to be remiss on introducing Don R. Sullivan and Mark Cockrell. Even though we've done the entire warm-up and we're about to bring our guest on, say hi, guys. Howdy. Hello. Thanks. I just want to say publicly to the entire internet, thank you both for giving your time and energy each week. Um, right now, Mark and Don are both making zero dollars and zero cents to give their time to this podcast to help you and to help me help you um, be more healthy and more fit. So thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. I mean that sincerely not in any cheesy way as it is coming out because of the fact that I'm typically a cheesy person. <laughs> and with that being said, let's bring on uh, Dr. Scott Leibowitz. I'm very excited. I don't know if I'm quite as excited as Don. Don's extremely excited. He's dancing in the video here. But uh, welcome back, Dr. Leibowitz. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We're we're very excited, as I said, to have you back. I would say probably um, for the cast, the uh, the hosts of this show, your visit with us was probably as impactful as any other host uh, guest we've had. And so. Before we even get into any questions, I thought, we talked about it on a couple of shows back, but I thought I'd let Mark take two minutes and give you uh, an update on what your time with us last time, how it impacted his life personally. Oh, Great. Okay. Put me on the spot there. Uh, well, uh, after your uh, last appearance, when you talked about uh, the warning signs that you probably do have sleep apnea, and I went, you know, I have all of those. Uh, I, I went through the process, had a sleep study, and uh, for about three months now, have been uh, sleeping every night with a rubber tube up my nose um, with a CPAP machine, and uh, I am happy that I'm doing it. I'm, in, I'm feeling better, I'm sleeping better, and, and I thank you for that. Well, I'm glad I could help. That's, uh, that's part of the whole, whole purpose of what I do is educate. change through education is really sort of my general sort of theme in how I take care of people. Yeah, and looks, yeah, looks uh, like it worked. <laughs> it did. And what's funny is we've got we've got two hosts who both needed to take that action, and one is kicking themselves. So they're, they're three months behind, Mark. <laughs> and the other I said I was the control to let everyone know what happens if you don't do the sleep study and get a CPAP. Nothing changes. <laughs> this is true. You feel exactly the same. Indeed. Well, let me. In case you haven't heard our, our previous episode with Dr. Leibowitz, let me give him a little more of an intro. Dr. Scott Leibowitz is a sleep specialist. He's got a whole lot of letters after his name. Uh, let's see, M-D-D-A-B-S-M-F-A-A-S-M. And that just means he's really smart, has a lot of education, and you should listen to everything that he says. That's what those li- initials mean. And uh, <laughs> Tell that to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Put her on. I'll be glad to tell her because she'll never meet me. It'll be fine. <laughs> uh, he is... Um, the co-medical director of the Sleep Disorder Center of Piedmont Hospital, and uh, he's one of the main dudes there at the Piedmont Hunter Institute in their sleep uh, department, and also he's a clinical assistant professor at Emory University, uh, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Did I get all that right, Dr. Leibowitz? That is correct. Fantastic. And so, um, 
And I've actually been working with him recently on some additional software things I'm doing because I also am a, an employee of Piedmont, as many of y'all know. And so it, it's always fascinating um, how sleep is more than just about being tired um, or you know getting a good night's rest and being peppy. It is so ingrained in everything um, that we do and are and every, all our health is tied to it in so many ways. I would recommend if you listen to this episode and your interest has peaked at all, Go back, um, find our previous episode. I'll, I'll look up and tell you what number it is here in a minute and listen to Dr. Leibowitz's first visit with us because he answered a plethora of questions. He really did. And so this is kind of a follow-up. These are the questions that came out of our last show. Um, where, episode 12. Thank you, Mark. Episode 12 um, where it's been that long, Dr. Leibowitz, almost 30 wow. episodes um, that uh, Don, Mark, myself came up with from talking with him the first time. So um, I won't, we don't want to rehash everything that we talked about before. So we're just going to jump right into some kind of general questions and see where it goes from there. And Dr. Lee Woods, like I always tell my guests, uh, you're the expert. You know what we don't know that we need to know. <laughs> so feel free to tell us anything that we need to know that we don't know about. Um, so if, if something we ask um, uh, sends you down a, uh, um, a thread of uh, information that you think our listeners need, Feel free to explore that and let us know whatever we need. So this is a you know free form discussion. This is our opportunity to have somebody um, on here that really knows the whole business that um, that we're discussing. So the first question we have uh, is this: Can I sleep too much? Uh, I know a lot of teenagers get in that that mode where they want to sleep till eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, one o'clock in the afternoon. And so is it is it possible to be over? To oversleep. Is that something? Can somebody get into that mode like the opposite of insomnia? Hypersomnia, I guess it would be? Well, um, the, the answer, I mean, the short answer is no. Um, but the long answer is um, people who sleep a lot or arguably too much are people who generally have some type of disorder that's causing them to sleep too much. So they do have hypersomnolence or excessive sleepiness. Hypersomnolence is just another word for excessive sleepiness. And so they seem to have longer than average or longer than usual sleep needs. And even then, they generally don't feel rested or restored or refreshed. And so it's usually suggestive of some type of other underlying problem. And not all that is sleepy is sleep apnea. There are lots of conditions that could potentially or lots of um, things that could potentially cause excessive sleepiness, including medications, including other sleep disorders. Um, there are what are called hypersomnolent syndromes, which basically are conditions where people are excessively sleepy and can never really satiate their sleep needs. So the idea that you can sleep, I mean, there are people who say, well, I slept too long. I slept too late. If I had woken up at, you know, eight o'clock and didn't sleep till 11, I would have felt rested. And that's usually, I mean, there is a kind of an ideal time to wake up relative to your sleep cycle. So if you kind of are, if your sleep is disrupted mid cycle, the tendency is to feel this component of what's called sleep inertia or residual sort of grogginess because you're sort of waking up in a part of sleep that there lives, leaves a lot of residue of that sort of sleep there. Whereas if you wake up at the end of a sleep cycle, so a sleep cycle really implies you start out either in light sleep or awake. You transition into sort of an intermediate sleep, into a deeper sleep, and then you hit dreaming sleep, and then you transition back up to lighter sleep or wakefulness very briefly, and that's what's called a sleep cycle. And that actually repeats itself in, in, in normal, healthy adults anywhere from five to six times a night. So if you wake up, I mean, most of us, our natural spontaneous wake time in the mornings tends to, fall, tends to occur at the end or at the completion of a sleep cycle. So... As a consequence of that, um, these people who feel like they sleep too much, it's really probably that they're kind of waking up sort of mid-cycle for whatever reason. So that's um, the same thing that makes you feel bad when you, if you, you know, people say, I shouldn't have taken such a long nap. Right. It's a similar, it's a similar thing. It's a similar phenomenon, you know, whereas, you know, we generally will tell people to take short naps, you know, very quick, you know, very 10, 15, 20 minute naps. And in so doing, it's sort of the so-called or third, less than 30 minutes for sure is sort of the so-called power nap. And that is essentially where we'll 
um, you know, you don't sleep too long. You don't allow yourself to get into that deeper sleep and then leave you with some of that residual sleep inertia is what it's called. Um, so, yes, the answer to that, that was a, long, a lot of words to answer. But, yes, same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there- doctor, I remember you saying last time that the optimal amount of sleep for a person is, is six to eight hours for a normal adult. What happens if... I go on vacation and, you know, not just a one-time occurrence, however you want to say it, um, or I'm, I'm a student, I guess, and, you know, over the summer, I sleep 12, 14, 16 hours every night, other than not having life. What, is there, a, is there a, a medical reason for that that you could identify, or would that be something that you would have to do? Uh, like a sleep study on with somebody on to find out more information. Is that just kind of a default? You need to go to a doctor type of thing. Uh, maybe that's as far as this answer is going to go. Just go seek medical attention. Well, you shouldn't need to sleep that much, but right. after prolonged periods of sleep deprivation or sleep curtailment, chronic sleep deprivation, in essence, the uh, we all there's recovery, and so. And you can look at the national averages of sleep times, and you, we find in the U.S. the average amount of sleep for adults is somewhere between – now, by the way, you, you had mentioned it was six to, to eight hours. It's really average is seven and a half to eight and a half hours, and that's sort of the general average number. And as I said, the last time we had this – the you know, last time I was on, we talked about there being a, a huge amount of variability amongst individuals in terms of what your sleep needs are. Okay. But in the case – so some people, maybe six hours is enough. It's actually fairly uncommon, but, but more often than not, it's seven and a half to eight and a half or so. There are people, just to, to follow up your original question, there are people who are long sleepers. So they feel perfectly fine and refreshed if they get nine hours, nine and a half hours, but if they get anything less, they feel horrible. And those those aren't people with hypersomnolence syndromes. They're on the sort of other end of the bell curve as far as their sleep needs, but they certainly are, they're not, there's nothing pathologic about that. Um, but in your case, what you're describing, needing 13, 14 hours of sleep, that's either a hypersomnolence syndrome or extreme recovery from prolonged sleep curtailment. And if you do that for more, to sleep that much for more than a few days would suggest that there's something else going on. Okay. So, so that's not normal. Now, Aaron, just to, to, to harken back to your question when you said, can you sleep too much? One of the things you said was teenagers who sleep till noon on the weekends. They're, they're very, that's a very different scenario than sort of recovery sleep, right? I mean, that is, some of that is recovery, but with, but with teenagers, Generally, what happens at puberty is there's a normal delay in the timing of sleep. So essentially, when we, you know, kids go to bed 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, sleep until 7, 8 the next morning. And then at puberty, all of a sudden, they're not sleepy or tired until 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. And they're very difficult to get up. I always say the adolescent syndrome is not so much the, you know, that that teenagers are rebellious and combative, but rather the, there's a normal delay in the timing of sleep. So they're rebellious because they won't go to sleep because they're not sleepy and they're and they're and they're lazy because they can't wake up because they're still in the in the middle of their natural sleep period at at, at wake at conventional societal wake times. So the, the the teenager is often sleep deprived all week because of this circadian delay in the timing of sleep and then subsequently they recover on the weekends and then allow their natural sleep phase to march out. So it's not it's not just sleeping too much, it's really recovery combining uh, with combined with a circadian delay in the timing of sleep. So my, yeah, so that so my mom was wrong. I wasn't being lazy. <laughs> no, no, you were being lazy because you wouldn't take out the trash. You were you right, know, not exactly. because you wanted to sleep late. Exactly. Yes. Well, you know the, uh, the that wasn't an option at my house. We we had to take out the farm. Who are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you grew up on yeah. the farm with Bobby Butler as your dad, and you learn how to get up and work. So yeah. is the uh, is the snooze button? A bad thing, you know. I've gotten in a habit recently. I've, I've started going into work at seven o'clock in the morning, um, so I'm getting up earlier. But what I do is my alarm goes off, and I could get out of bed, and I'm I'm I feel rested. I could get out of bed and get up, but I tend to hit the snooze button because what happens is that ends up being my my son will wake up after the snooze after the alarm goes off the first time, and then he'll come in the room, and we have end up having a few minutes family time, kind of just all laying in the bed there together. Um, but I'll doze back off a lot of times just because I'm, I'm kind of happy. You know, I don't ever wake all the way up. Is that bad? Is that a bad habit to get into? Should I go ahead and get up and sit up if I'm even going to have this, my son come in and me and my wife and my son have a few minutes of family time? Should I, should I be more aggressive with my waking up? Is the snooze button bad? 
Um, so are you asking me if, if you, sh if I should break up that, that lovely intimate time with your family in the mornings and <laughs> deprive your, deprive your son of that intimate, those intimate moments with his father as he leaves work for the long, no, the answer is there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. And I think it's very much personal preference. I think that, um, you know, some people, you know, arguably, let's just say you're somebody who likes to snooze 30 or 45 minutes in the morning. And I happen to actually be one will be one of those kind of people. I like some preparation so that I can kind of get muster up the energy to get out of bed. But arguably that's 30 or 45 minutes that I could be sleeping uninterrupted. So if you look at it from a sort of a, just a theoretical perspective, that's 30, I could have uninterrupted, more uninterrupted sleep, but psychologically it's helpful for me to know that I got to, you know, I'm going to get up in, you know, X amount of time. As right, see, as I'm, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say for me that typically I have been, more of the I like to sleep as long as I can because I tend to be a, a late night person so I'll stay up a little later than I should quote unquote um, and so I'll sleep until I it's time for me to get up I get up take a shower get dressed and go out the door you know I have very little piddle time as my wife calls it in the morning but I've recently since I'm getting up um, early earlier I've recently um, started having a few more minutes like that with my with my son and my wife in the morning, so it's I'm snoozing more than I used to, and I just want to make sure I wasn't doing something like a uh, you know breaking my sleep cycle up or causing some kind of weird thing. It doesn't seem to be affecting me, so I, I was I was okay with that. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I really, honestly, I think it's a lot of personal preference. All right. Well, th the next question uh, is is something for those of us out there who are using a CPAP machine, and I would guess that we probably have several listeners that are using them because I know we have several listeners that are overweight and lots of overweight ten people tend to be uh, uh, have sleep apnea uh, OSA and uh, maybe using a CPAP machine so Mark what is your question well I noticed uh, when I first started using the the CPAP when I went you know I, it took me several weeks to sort of get used to it and actually sleep with the machine that was supposed to help me sleep but once I did I had insane crazy amounts of of REM sleep, like dreaming all night long, really vivid, crazy, wild dreams. Is that normal? Is that is your brain like catching up on on REM that it hasn't had, or was that an aberration? No, uh, your your absolute your experience was absolutely um, reflective of was what was going on physiologically with your sleep. As a product of having sleep apnea for so long, your sleep was fragmented, so your total percentage of REM sleep was reduced because in order to really get into and maintain REM sleep, you have to have a certain continuity and stability of sleep. So as a result of depri dep deprivation of REM sleep, there's a recovery that happens as you first start sleeping with CPAP. And in fact, that recovery can last for weeks in some p individuals. Um, so your, your, the perception that you were dreaming a lot is probably an accurate one. However, there's another comp aspect to this, which is to say that most people don't remember dreams unless they wake up either in the middle of them or at the end of them. So now everybody's different in that respect. And so there are a lot of, you know, I, I can't, I don't want to universally apply this to you or to anybody really, but it may also be that you are having these crazy dreams and then you were awakening either sort of at the end of the dream briefly, very transiently. I mean, when you, when you were remembering your dreams, were you, did you recall waking up after being like, wow, that was a weird dream? Or do you remember waking up in the morning and feeling like, um, I like, dreamed all night. Yeah. It yeah. was just a sense the next morning of, I dreamed all night long last night. I, I could remember, I, I typically didn't remember my dreams before that. And so, yeah, when I'd wake up in the morning, I'd actually be physically tired from, it was exhausting to dream that much. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wonder, actually, I wonder if, if that's what you, you really felt tired in the morning. I wonder if it was that you were actually waking a lot during the night. I've actually, you know, I've been asked that question before. It, is it true that dreaming makes you tired? And the answer is no. It's true that waking up makes you tired. And waking up is how we remember dreams. Well, it wasn't a physical tired. It was like an, a, a mental and emotional drain, like like the, the end of a long day of studying. It was that same kind of feeling, like my brain right. had been very active overnight. Well, and that's probably an accurate, accurate perception. It's kind of hard to say, and there's a lot of subjectivity in terms of, um, in terms of what you know, the individual experience based you know based upon sleep in general. 
but I suspect that actually you know, that that perception that you were cognitively tired as a result of, um, of, of so you know dreaming all night is probably an accurate reflection of what was really happening. And this is probably a good point, a good time to mention and and or remind people that Dr. Leibowitz is on as uh, as our guest and as uh, as somebody who cares about people, but. Please do not construe anything that he says as professional medical advice. <laughs> um, so, so uh, you know, he's not diagnosing anybody over, you know, over over the internet um, at this point. If you if you're curious, if you need a sleep study, go see a sleep specialist in your area. <laughs> That's true. And if you're if you need a sleep specialist in your area, if you go to aasmnet dot org, that's the American Academy of Sleep Medicine's website, and you go right. under sleep specialists, you generally can find board, um, ASM accredited sleep centers, which are affiliated with board certified sleep doctors, and they're, they're, they have a whole long list of them, and, and or you can call their national office in Chicago, and they'll give you a list as well. Yeah, so I know we had, that, we, had sorry, that show, we had that in the show notes last time, and we'll make sure we put that link back in. Yeah, uh, and, and you know again. how I went, how I found mine. I live in a rural area. I went to my doctor, and he said, "Well, there are two. One is three hours away, and one is an hour away. How far do you want to drive?" <laughs> that was the yeah. way it worked yeah. for me. Yeah, that's, that's funny. funny. Don probably would have a similar. I don't know, Don. You're you're not quite as rural as Mark. No, my options would be: you have one that's forty five minutes away, one that's an hour away, one that's, and then a dozen that are two hours away. Yeah, my option is there's one about 15 minutes from my office. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> His name's Dr. Scott Leibowitz. <laughs> so, yes, this is true. So, uh, why do some people? I had this roommate, Dr. Leibowitz, and this, like I said, this is more of just a kind of picking your brain, not specifically related to weight necessarily this time, but just kind of being healthy in general. Uh, I had this college roommate named we call him Tornado Tommy, um, but for a whole other reason, that's a whole other story. But he slept in a room. That was kind of around from mine, and I could see him through the kitchen usually, because uh, his room was in a den that we converted to a room. Six of us, Mark was one of them. Six of us shared this house in college, uh, and literally, I sat at the at a table in the dining room working on a paper from like eight in the morning till eleven in the morning, and listened to him snooze for in seven minute increments <laughs> for three hours. <laughs> you know, it'd be nah nah nah, and it would beep till I couldn't stand it. I'd holler, Tommy. He hit it and shut it off. Seven minutes later, same thing. Uh, why do some people seem to need four alarm clocks or just have a hard time waking up? Is it just because they're sleep deprived, or is that is that just part of the natural bell, bell curve? You know, some people say I'm a morning person, I'm a night person. Some people wake up easy, some people don't wake up easy. Is that just part of different makeup, or is that person may have had some kind of issue? Well, I mean, I think all of the above, but um, it's. What you describe is fairly typical of folks, uh, as I was describing sort of that adolescent thing, that delay in timing of sleep. So that's indicative of, of what's called delayed sleep phase disorder, which is a circadian rhythm disorder. And essentially the idea of, of circadian rhythms are we all have an internal body clock that is not a behavior. It is actually a genetic trait that is as hardwired in your DNA as the color of your skin. And you cannot change that. You can't go from being a night owl to an early bird. You are what you are. And that is just, you can temper it. But when it, when you are a so-called super night owl, the timing, the biologic timing of sleep is horribly misaligned with the timing of your life for most people. And essentially, if you can imagine living in Hawaii and flying to Atlanta every night to go to sleep and you're still in Hawaii <laughs> time, that's how night owls live. So when it's eight in the morning, Atlanta time, if you're on the East Coast, it's still three in the morning, biologically speaking, and your body, all of the physiologic processes are functioning, even if you're awake, as they should be when you're asleep. So people who are sleeping during those hours are in their, you know, night owls will always tell you their best sleep is the right when their alarm goes off. You know, it's the hardest time to get up is their deepest sleep right. because that's when they're really in the, and there's a whole physiologic basis for this, which I won't get into, but the bottom line is, is that these people are in the deepest, deepest part of their sleep. So your, your roommate was likely a super night owl, I'm guessing, now just from what yeah. you're telling me, and that his biologic bedtime, now sometimes night owls can go to sleep before four in the morning, three in the morning, and they can go to bed at a more conventional time like 11 or 12 o'clock, but that's only because they're hypersomnolent and, and, and they can make, and oftentimes you'll find these people taking sleeping pills 
put themselves down at an early hour, but their natural sleep phase then kicks in at three or four in the morning. And, and it's not the sleeping pill that makes them hard to get up. It makes it's just the natural sleep phase. Right. So, yeah, so they're just hosed coming and going because if they try to yeah. go to bed early because they're always tired, then they wake up in the middle of the night, probably at two in the morning and they're wide awake. And then they finally get to bed about four and then it's time to get up at seven. Right. That and, first and little sleep period cycle. is that little sleep period is actually more like a nap, an right. early evening nap for those people. And so, you know, it's it, this trait. Maybe you don't have a full on circadian night owls delayed sleep phase problem. But if you're a night owlish kind of person, that is a very, very common trait in folks who have sleep onset problems because they're just not sleepy at bedtime, at conventional bedtimes. So they go to bed trying to go to sleep when they're not sleepy, and then they engage in all of the behaviors that are pro- sleep prohibitive, prevent you from being able to actually fall asleep in a constructive way. And it's largely because they're trying to sleep at the wrong time. Now, that doesn't mean their life is you know is telling them that they should be sleeping and society has been telling them that they need to go to bed because the early bird gets the worm but <laughs> everybody has a uh, has a has unique preferred biologic windows for sleep so you know to that specific what you bring up a great something i see every, literally every day are patients such as that and one of the hallmark features of those people is they have trouble falling asleep and they have trouble waking up which is different than the classic insomnia person Right. I've long That's- considered moving to California just so I can not have to get up so early. <laughs> that might help you, Don. Maybe you can move That'd all the way great. to Hawaii. I love it. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, once you get to California, you're, you're like hit the ground running for the first week, but then you just adapt to their phase, and then you just have the same problem, but on West Coast time. <laughs> That's uh, funny. So darn. does eating before you go to sleep, let's just talk real quick about sleep hygiene because you kind of touched on that for a minute. And that's something we talked about last time, but I think it's worth mentioning in general. Uh, we got a couple of different kind of questions thrown in here. I'm just going to lump them all together. Um, eating before you go to sleep, exercising you know, near the time you go to sleep, light and sound, does that really make a, a difference? And is does, uh, actually, I'm going to save the next one. So let's just talk about those four, and maybe, maybe we need to take them one at a time. Does eating just before you go to sleep help or hurt your sleep cycle usually? Well, it's generally not a great idea because it more a it's just wasted calories that you just basically do nothing but just store because our you know our caloric expenditure is much much reduced. We're in sort of a hibernation mode while we're sleeping, right. uh, and it predisposes you to having nighttime reflux depending upon what you're eating and any food in your stomach generally does. So it's more it tends to be more disruptive than it is helpful. That said. You know, uh, going you know, going to sleep hungry for some people it can impair impede their ability to fall asleep. But you know, there's a normal nocturnal fast, right? All of our metabolic processes slow, and we go you know we go to sleep and we wake up and we'll often go eight you know ten twelve hours without eating. You try to do that when you're awake. You're you know you're you want to eat your arm. You're so tired. I mean, you're so hungry. Right. So, so, but we, that doesn't, you know, we wake up in the morning, sure, we're ready for breakfast, but we're not, you know, we're not like starving like we would be. And that's basically our body's way of dealing with, you know, these prolonged periods, this fast. I mean, it's a normal nocturnal fast. So people who eat in the middle of the night, that's actually an abnormal disruption of the nocturnal fast. And there's lots of this opens up a whole nother sort of group of disorders, which we won't get into. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, generally after our meal, our, our, our evening meal and perhaps a snack sometime thereafter, you should have, you should wait a few hours before, you know, after eating, before you go to sleep. But, you know, it's again, individual variability. What's that? Or swimming, of course. Of course. A good hour. And then, and then as far as exercise is concerned, yeah, exercise at night is can be activating for a lot of people. And so if you find it activating, it's probably not a great idea. So, I mean, I work out at night by necessity, unfortunately. And right. I can go to sleep, you know, after, you know, you know, hitting it hard for an hour and a half. I can pretty much go upstairs, shower, and be asleep in 20 minutes because I'm just, I'm just like that. But uh, you know, most people would be very activated and not be able to sleep for hours. So it's you know, it's really you have to it's individual preference. Yeah, I, and, I work out, and I, I usually get done about nine, and I don't have any problem going to bed at ten. Right. Uh, I usually don't, but I don't. The times that I manage to get to if bed you need at 10, to, I don't have a problem. You right. Could. So and then the other t- question with light and sound, absolutely, your environment has a lot. Those are environmental disturbances are important. And recognizing what the impact of environmental disturbances and what the optimal environment for you is, um, is, you know, it's important. And so typically dark, cool rooms are better. TV, flickering of the TV can cause arousals during sleep. 
Um, light, it tends to be light at night suppresses, truly suppresses melatonin secretion. Melatonin is a hormone our brain secretes at dusk, which tell, which sets in motion all the neurophysiologic changes, which, which then allows sleep onset to happen a few hours later. And so if you're, if you've got a brightly lit room or you're in a brightly lit environment, you're suppressing your melatonin and oftentimes delaying the onset, the natural onset of sleep. Now, different people have different susceptibilities to this, but the fact is, is that generally a dark, cool room is without TV, without noise is preferred. Right. And so, you know, the people who say, well, I can fall asleep anywhere. I'm, you know, I don't have a problem with that. I'm just guessing that a lot of people who say that are sleep deprived and that's why they can fall asleep. No question about it. When people tell me, whenever someone, whenever I see a patient and say, oh, I don't have trouble sleeping. My, I'm asleep before my head hits the pillow. I'm like, well, that's not normal. There's something, you know, you, you've got a problem. <laughs> Thank you very much. Right. Thank <laughs> my, you for self-diagnosing. That'll be going around on. Yeah. Right. So, so yes, your answer is right. When it, Generally, people who are that sleepy are unaffected by that or l- affected less by that. Now, again, there's a lot of variability, but that's usually the case. Well, the, uh, and then the other question is, is it, you always hear people say th- things like, I'm so tired, um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm having trouble sleeping or I can't get to sleep. I'm so tired. Is it, is that really possible that you can be so tired that you, that can make it hard to go to sleep? Is that, is that something that could actually happen? You know, the, the I, answer is to think it, if you're really sleepy, you're going to fall asleep. From my perspective, you're absolutely right. And I, 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 I don't, I think what happens, there's a difference between fatigue and sleepiness. And differentiating fatigue from sleepiness is important to people who have sleep problems because you can be exhausted where it feels like you've got a hundred pound weights on every, you know, are every, you know, limb and it's impossible to get out of chair. But if you're not sleepy, you're not going to be able to fall asleep. So sleeping sleepiness is very specific for the sleep wake mechanism and and or dysfunction therein whereas fatigue is a very non-specific symptom that emanates from lots and lots of different sources it could be from medications it could be from medical problems it could be from psychiatric issues it could be from sleep issues but it's not always and it's 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 not necessarily indicative of sleepiness they can coexist and one can someone's sleepiness one person's sleepiness may be someone else's fatigue but the people who say I'm just so tired I can't sleep are oftentimes people who are so fatigued but they're not sleepy and and generally there's other things going on with those people just you know but but you know that that's generally the case so the answer my answer is you know hypersomnolent people people who are excessively sleepy really really sleepy people are sleep deprived you can't keep them awake doesn't matter you know if I sleep deprive you for 36 hours you're not going to be so tired that you can't sleep you're not going to be able to stay awake. <laughs> you know, I right. mean, it's just that's a that's biology there. Yeah, exactly. So, um, Don has a question. We we touched on this a little bit last time, but Don, go ahead and, and jump on your question. The, the next um, question there. we the the one about the yes the that one right there yes, that, that the guy. next okay. one wait that smooth radio guy <laughs> that was great wasn't it that wasn't it great. <laughs> All right. The next question. The next one. Yeah. So we've talked some about how a lot of folks that are obese or that have fitness issues or on the show, we just say people who are fat. Um, we've talked about how there are consequences of that in sleep. What about the other way? Is there any direct correlation between a lack of sleep or sleep issues and obesity or general fitness issues that are that are recognized by by medical science i guess or i mean is there anything that you can say um you know if you don't get enough sleep whatever that may be for a person because we've said it's different for a lot of folks that you're going to have you know higher blood pressure or you're going to gain weight easier than than someone who is sleeping or anything like that uh, yes, absolutely. And there's, there's actually a fairly um, robust body of research specifically uh, regarding that particular point. And it, and it goes both from insufficient sleep and sleep apnea, the two areas that have probably been looked at the most. And it's been shown that first in the sleep apnea population that there's um, two real obvious sources, physiologic not, um, sources, well, I mean, one is, you know, when people, people with sleep apnea generally are just tired and sleepy and, you know, to, to lose weight requires a tremendous amount 
of motivation, focus, and, and energy to be able to do not only exercise, but to actually put forth the energy that it takes to prepare foods that are ultimately going to help you lose weight. You know, I mean, you have to control your diet. You have to really manage your caloric intake, and, and, and it takes a lot of work. So sleep apnea, just by virtue of the sleepiness and, the, and, and oftentimes fatigue associated with it, is one aspect of it. But there's actually other aspects that are happening on more of a metabolic level where that we have there's two hormones that, that modulate um, eat, feeding, basically, or hunger um, and feeding behavior. Specifically, one of them is called leptin. And leptin is a hormone that's secreted by the lining of your stomach. And it sends a signal to your brain, which essentially – sends you a, a feeling of satiety, right? So if you are, uh, so if you have untreated sleep apnea, there is actual leptin resistance. And so you can, uh, you essentially not same way. You're cutting out on us, Dr. Leibowitz? Uh, I'm getting a lot of static here. I'm sorry about that. You're back. I, don't know. I don't know what happened, okay. but you're back. I'm not sure what happened there. Yeah. Uh, so people so with, le people with untreated sleep People with untreated sleep apnea have leptin resistance, so they basically will eat more to feel satiated, and they need to eat sort of, the, and they don't feel satiated from normal from the normal amount of food in that person. Beyond that, though, there's also a hormone called ghrelin, and ghrelin is a very primitive hormone which basically drives feeding behaviors. It sort of, kind of helps us stimulate us to go and forage and find food and make sure that we get the adequate calories and such. And people who have untreated sleep apnea also have elevated levels of ghrelin, and so the tendency will be to eat, eat unconsciously, eat when you're not hungry. You know, you're walking past the refrigerator. Sometimes it's referred to as bored eating or you know, just just right. kind of grazing or whatever, and that is actually not just a behavioral thing, but there's actually a, an abnormal drive to do that. That's happening on a very subconscious sort of metabolic level because these people have elevated levels of ghrelin. So those are two ways, but the, also there's sleep duration, uh, at least epidemiologic studies, large population-based studies that have looked at thousands upon thousands of people, and I think we talked about this a little bit on the last show where. You know, generally speaking, less than six hours has been shown to increase the risk of obesity as well as other problems like hypertension and type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular mortality and cardiovascular events. It's all associated with insufficient sleep. And that comes about both from also the hormonal, the leptin ghrelin, um, you know, component of it as well as the nervous system's activity and the stress that's being induced by insufficient sleep. There's also some metabolic dysfunction or imbalances related to cortisol that can be associated with some of the weight deposition. So, I mean, there's lots of different ways that it can actually impact, um, you know, weight gain. And essentially what I tell people is, is, you know, sleep doesn't, you know, if you're sleeping well, whether it's treating sleep apnea, you're getting adequate sleep, it doesn't enable, it doesn't, the pounds don't just shed off. But what it does is it takes one barrier away that may be preventing or inhibiting your ability to lose weight without you knowing it. And it's just one less obstacle that you have to navigate, you know. Right. And so it, it, it's really it, – it's much more difficult to lose weight when you have sleep problems than if you, if you sleep well. And that's, that's well, fairly well documented. So the, uh, you know, the long and short of it is being – having bad – having sleep issues doesn't just make you tired. It makes you sick. Yep. Absolutely. So, sick and tired is, is a, is a true statement in this, yeah, in this absolutely. circumstances. Uh, are, no there, are there trim, healthy, athletic people with sleep apnea or um, we talk absolutely. about fat people all the time. Is, is it relegated specifically to that segment of the population? No. And, and I tell this to people literally every day. Sleep apnea is not a disease of obesity. It's one that's made worse by obesity. So you've got, uh, you know, a fair number of obese people who don't have sleep apnea. You know, and so, but it is one that certainly is made worse by it. So for every 20 pounds you are over your ideal body weight, the risk of having severe sleep apnea goes up by a factor of six. And what that means, I don't do the math, but basically it just means that the heavier you are, the worse, one. Yeah, you know, the sleep apnea is more severe. And it really just means that, so basically people who are um, overweight and have sleep apnea have a predisposition for it generally is a genetic component to it both from the standpoint of you know how their anatomy is built and how their nerves and muscles in their throat don't work when they're sleeping but there's also a fair you know somewhere between arguably 20 30 percent of people who are non-obese who have sleep apnea and and that's 
you know, it's predominantly a neuromuscular thing, meaning nerves and muscles in the throat and the activity during sleep or inactivity or dysfunction during sleep, as well as an anatomical or craniofacial, how their bones formed, which then positions the soft tissue in their throat in a certain way, which would make it more predisposed to sort of block the airway when they're sleeping. So, so that's a great question. You, and unfortunately, there are a lot of uh, um, thin or athletic people or sort of atypical looking people who are tired and sleepy who never get asked any of the questions about sleep because they don't fit the classic, you know, type of it. And, right. and it's unfortunate. And I see those people all the time. And oftentimes they've been mismanaged or suffered for years before they ever actually get, you know, someone starts to ask the right questions. Yeah. Yes, that's, that's an interesting thing because I bet you there's also, we talked about before, a good percentage of people who don't really even do the traditional snoring that have sleep apnea, right? Yeah, yeah. You don't, and, and you don't those, necessarily snore, you know, the big old Dagwood Bumstead snore if you have sleep apnea. It could be a little more subtle than that and just have the wake up and all that other things. Yeah. So, I mean, okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go, no, you go ahead, Dr. Lewis. I was just going to say for about those about those people, oftentimes, if it's in particular obstructive sleep apnea, which is a little different than the central sleep apnea, which the central sleep apnea people, where those are people who don't breathe because the brain doesn't send a signal, those meet, those typically are people who don't fit the classic weight. Um, you know, they tend to be thin. They tend to not snore. They, they or, or as overtly, they tend to not fit that class. They don't tend to even be sleepy necessarily. They tend to have heart problems more or have had strokes and so forth. But the um, people with sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea, will generally snore. It may not be as the as you describe the typical kind of snore, but but it's a waxing and waning thing. And so it may be happening at times during the night when no one else is awake, so you never right. know it. And it's not, and they don't fit the classic type. So I just wanted to add on to that, that those people yeah. tend to snore to some degree, but the Manoa may have observed it. Thank you for clearing up my bumbling attempts to <laughs> say that. So uh, we only have just a few minutes left of your time. I have one final quick question. Um, if you can give, if you have any tips or suggestions or, or ideas for our listener out there who may say, you know what, eight hours of interrupted sleep would be great. However, um, my work schedule doesn't permit it because I'm working two jobs and one job goes late in the night and I only have five hours before I do my other job. So I have to take a nap or, or I've got a newborn or I'm taking care of my invalid mother or whatever. What, <clears throat> what's some, uh, mitigating actions people can take if they literally just can't squeeze eight hours in a row in to get in bed and go to sleep? If, if any, well, I mean, you know, life comes before everything else. And while you have to have your health to be able to engage in your life, there's certain realities. So you have to be a little bit somewhat pragmatic about your approach. And, you know, the first thing is, is that, you know, the sleep does need to be a priority. And, and so it's the person who I, I tend to focus on the person who doesn't have two jobs, who's not caring for a kid, you know, a newborn or, or an elderly parent or whatever, um, that, you know, who needs to really make sleep more of a priority. Um, but, you know, when you're talking about that, those certain individuals, I think the thing to keep in mind is this, is that naps are not wrong. Naps are... <laughs> All right. Naps are actually a very therapeutic and effective thing to to use and a tool. That said, I mean, if you have problems sleeping at night and then you nap off and on throughout the day, you're just perpetuating your nighttime sleep issues. So napping for people with nighttime sleep issues is a different story. But for people who who can't, for a lot of different reasons, are unable to get the sleep that they need by virtue of those these situations that you've described, if they can squeeze a 30-minute nap in the afternoon, they're going to do themselves a lot of good, both from a quality of life standpoint, productivity standpoint, interpersonal relations standpoint. I mean, sleepiness right. and sleeplessness is it is can be very, very destructive in terms of what your life and, and, and your ability to function in your life. So, so understand, now that said, it, it, 30 minute to less than an hour for sure, 30 to 45 minute is usually an optimal amount. I always tell people you want to kind of touch down into sleep and take off. You don't want to go touch down, pull into the, you know, to the gate, get out, have some coffee, sit down, <laughs> watch the game, get back on the plane. You know, you right. want to, don't want to take a two hour nap. You want to take a 30 to 40, you want to take a power nap just that's to good. restart enough. That's great to know because some people, I've actually heard people before that, that have that two job situation or whatever, 
They're like, well, I don't want to take a nap this afternoon. I won't sleep tonight. Well, yeah, you will sleep tonight probably because you're exhausted because you've had well, terrible I mean, sleep. Well, it's a balance. Some people really it will affect their nighttime sleep, and there's yeah. and that's those are people who probably shouldn't nap, or if they're going to nap, they shouldn't nap for more than literally five or ten minutes. But you know, understanding who you are and how you are. Now that said, I do want to reinforce this one other concept, and this is my this is my soapbox sort of topic that I, I, you know, I'll take this opportunity. I can't remember if I said this on our last show, but basically sleepiness is not a symptom of laziness. Sleepiness is not a symptom of a character flaw. Sleepiness is the brain's equivalent of the heart's chest pain. It is your brain saying, I have not satiated my sleep needs there, or there is something wrong with my sleep or there is something wrong with my wake. It means there is a problem. And so people who get fired because they fall asleep, there's nothing that gets me more fired up than hearing about someone who got reprimanded because they fell asleep in a meeting. Because they're not falling asleep because they want to fall asleep. They're not falling asleep because they're necessarily because they're disinterested or bored. They're falling asleep because there's an abnormal pathologic degree of sleepiness that makes it d- impossible for them to stay awake. And right. so understanding the nature of the sleepiness is the most important thing. But that that is sort of just a, you know, I had the, I had the forum, might as well take advantage of it. <laughs> well, yeah, sleepiness <laughs> and laziness are not the same thing. They are not the same thing. When I used to lay around on the couch for 14 hours watching Kung Fu movies, I wasn't asleep during any of it. I was just exactly. being lazy. <laughs> We're just lazy. <laughs> That's a whole different ball of wax. So, yep, uh, yep. Mark, Don, do you have any final questions before we let Dr. Leibowitz go and have his time with his family this evening? I'm sure he's had a busy day and ready to Actually, we do have one question from a live listener, um, and th- they want to know, is there any confirmed stats or numbers on uh, uh, death rates for untreated sleep apnea? Good question. You know, um, the answer to that is not directly. The, the bottom line is, is that sleep apnea does not kill people. Sleep apnea causes things that will kill people, kill them much faster and much more often. So people who die in their sleep, the sleep apnea may be causing the thing that killed them to happen. So Reggie White's a great example of that. Reggie White was a former defensive lineman for the Green Bay Packers and Philadelphia Eagles prior to that. But basically, you know, at 42, he was retired. He was a preacher. He was an amazing human being, really. And, you know, tragically, he died in his sleep. He had untreated sleep apnea. And to this day, his wife will say he, he died because he didn't wear his mask. And the reason he died was because he probably had very, very severe sleep apnea. But he also had a condition, if I'm, if I'm, if I understand it correctly, called sarcoid and sarcoidosis is an inflammatory condition that generally involves the lungs, but in his case also involved his heart. And so he had an abnormality in his cardiac conduction system, the electrical wiring of his heart. And when his oxygen levels dropped down to the 50 or 60% range, his heart couldn't handle it. So he had a, some cell death, like what the equivalent of a heart attack because of the low oxygen. And, or, you know, and it triggered this cascade of abnormal electrical cardiac conduction, and it triggered a heart arrhythmia that killed him in his sleep. And that's how people die in their sleep. So, so it's not that you stop breathing and you don't wake up, right. usually, I'm assuming. It, that's, that's exactly, yeah. that does not happen. What happens is, is that some, it, it triggers a lethal event. And so, so the, the, the question's a good one, but it's more that there is a lot, lots and lots of literature talking about cardiovascular outcomes and deaths in patients with sleep apnea as compared to patients without sleep apnea. Um, or people with sleep apnea treated, and that's the, they're they're kind of grouped into the without sleep apnea. And it's clear in, 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 in an enormous number of studies and compelling. It's it, time and time again these studies show this that the outcomes are you know you know and to give you exact I don't have the exact numbers at my fingertips at this point because it, it involves a whole cascade you know a whole number of different um, conditions that but the outcomes are dramatically better with patients who have sleep apnea who are treated as compared to those who are not. You know, so so it is important in terms of the outcomes, and and that includes cardiovascular mortality, people who die from heart conditions, and it's much higher over the course of time in patients who have untreated sleep apnea compared to not. So so to give you an exact number would be difficult because there's not there's no hard literature that t- gives us that exact number, but the trends are there time and time and time again, study after study. And it and it does correct me again if I'm wrong. It does uh, cause and exacerbate many comorbidity factor i mean it'll it can cause or uh aggravate your diabetes heart disease i mean there's multitude of diseases and issues that can arise out of it even if the you just don't stop breathing in the middle of the night and just die because you quit breathing doesn't happen 
Right. That's more likely to have one of these other comorbid factors that'll end up killing you. If the sleep apnea don't, one of them will get you, you know, type of thing. Yeah, no, I mean, the sleep apnea, you know, is number one treatable cause of high blood pressure. It increases your risk for strokes and heart attacks and heart failure, heart arrhythmias and type 2 diabetes and obesity. And it, 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 incl- it impacts all of that. Right. Yeah, I can it's only imagine if you've got really bad, maybe stress-related heart disease or whatever, you have that adrenaline dump from waking yourself up in the middle of the night with with obstructive sleep apnea. That that's that has to have killed more than one person. Because uh, I know a, whenever I wake up in the middle of the night like that, sometimes I feel like I just had a heart attack, and I don't. I'm 28 years old. It's just ridiculous. You wake up and you think you just ran a marathon. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So, absolutely. I know this is. You, you know, obviously, you're not diagnosing Don. You're not seeing Don. This is not your. Uh, clinical professional opinion because he's not in your clinic, but would you recommend that Don get a sleep study based on what he just said, Dr. Leibowitz? <laughs> Duh. Oh, <laughs> uh, there you go, Thanks, Don. Aaron. Is that a medical term, Dr. Yeah. Leibowitz? Uh, yes. Well, I, years and years of medical have... education makes me an authority to say duh. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully next time we have Dr. Leibowitz on, Don will be able to tell him about how well his sleep, uh, his CPAP is helping him as well. So, anyway, Dr. Leibowitz, we're going to let you go. I appreciate your time uh, more than you know. And uh, as always, it's a pleasure. And you are a veritable font of information, all sleep-related topics. So, Well, thank you. Uh, it's always a pleasure. I, Don, I hope you go get a sleep study. Thank you, doctor. <laughs> I'm going to run it every <laughs> All right, week. you guys. We Thanks a- again. I, I always enjoy it. It's lots of fun. Thanks, Dr. Leibowitz. Have a great night. All right. So, our number one action item out of this call so far tonight is Don needs to go get a sleep study. But before Apparently Don gets so. a sleep study. <laughs> the, the number one action item was to get the baby sleeping through the night. That's why Don put that last question on there. <laughs> what I'm supposed well, to so, do until she does. <laughs> so, um, Don, uh, we, we, we do want you to get a sleep study. We need, a, we need an email campaign from all our listeners to get a sleep study. Sleep study. Sleep study. All right. So, Don, Aaron. we know you're going to get the sleep study. We're excited about that. But in the meantime, another thing that you're doing to get healthy, obviously, we talked about Weight Watchers last week with Gretchen. And you've got yet another fantastic Weight Watchers meal that Mark does not believe exists. No, I'm Weight calling BS Watches. on this one. Weight Watchers. It's not yeah, Weight Watchers. Um, it's not. It can't be. I, it's, it's you. You got this out of a Paula Dean cookbook, and you're calling it Weight Watchers. Our, um, you know, I actually had a hard time believing it whenever I ate the meal as well. This is chicken fried steak. Anyone south of the Mason-Dixon line just looked up from whatever it is they were doing while they were reading, <laughs> listening to this podcast. Yes, chicken fried steak. It is not deep fried. It is pan fried with just a little bit of oil. You got seasoned flour and breadcrumbs instead of, of uh, oil dredge. I'm sorry, a egg dredge and then a bunch of white flour. And it's got, it even has onion gravy. It is you know, delicious. A southern dish if it's got oil on it. <laughs> oil, oil. That's oil. right. Yeah, that's right. Oil. Oh, I'm sorry. It does have an egg wash. Ah, I haven't looked at this in a while. So, yeah, you've got, again, uh, as with many of the Weight Watchers meals, pay attention to your fat-free skim milk, to your uh, unreduced fat bacon. There is bacon in this recipe. That's and awesome. I know for certain that Mark is going to send this one over to his wife. Yes, because he is he. This is the the leopard spotted unicorn. Well, I'm, uh, I'm reading it now, and now I understand because it's three ounces of meat. It's a twelve ounce fillet that feeds four people. So right. yeah, so wait. that's gonna say the thing about it is you have to be careful. I would eat. I would tend to want to eat three of these. Yes, I would eat the full twelve ounces. That's a meal, right? A twelve ounce portion of meat is is a meal. <laughs> Apparently, it's four meals according to it, Weight Watchers. It is tasty though. It is worth having. And believe it or not, it's three ounces of this stuff is actually more than you would think it is. That sounds like a very tiny amount. That's about the size of the palm of your hand, which is actually a full serving of meat. Luckily, so, I have giant palms. That's right. So, and we <laughs> talked about this on, on, uh, that was actually a, uh, I believe an eat less tip. Was that what we were calling those before? Aaron? Yep, eat, eat less, eat less, tip. exercise more. Yes. Uh, that was one of the ones we had in one of the previous shows about, uh, serving sizes and portions of, you know, normal air quotes there, portions of, of foods. So yes, that is a full portion. It is a decent size and it is so worth eating. Fantastic. All right. And there's well, no chicken in it. There's, There's no, no chicken. chicken. I can actually eat this one. 
And then, by the way, steak, I tried just a quick It is steak there, fried like chicken. If you weren't raised in the South, that's what that means. There is no chicken in the dish. <laughs> I uh, I did have for breakfast this morning the spinach um, spinach smoothie that Don mentioned the other day that we were talking about. last. I think it was last show. I had that this morning minus the whey protein. It was very good, very filling, and I enjoyed it muchly. Mark, if yes, somebody sir. was listening to this show and they would think, you know, not only do I need to get fit, I need to learn more about Linux. What could they do? <laughs> um, you know, there's probably a surprising correlation of people who could make both of those statements. Um, but the way you could do that is you go, could go to elementopi.com and, and check out the other, uh, podcast that we have on the network. We have, uh, it's a, it's a heavily tech oriented network, uh, but we do have some other things. For example, one meal, one workout. We have a, a general purpose talk show we call the periodic table. Uh, we have other That's what shows. we're calling that now, general purpose. Yeah, general purpose. <laughs> That's yes. a nice way to say it. <laughs> yes. Think, Four talking heads babbling crazily about things for general purpose. Yes. Think think uh, the old Hugh Donahue. Uh, Phil Donahue, excuse me. Uh, Phil Donahue. The old Phil Donahue. It was, it's that kind of show. It's uh, it's rampant anarchy with style. Uh, but anyway, uh, check us out there at elementopi.com. You can also find the forums for this show there where uh, Aaron and or Don puts all of the recipes there. So if you want to go back and, and uh, check all those out, you can. You can also find uh, good conversations about people like you and, and by people like you. Elementopi.com. And as always, if you uh, if you want to send me an email, double A-R-O-N at one meal, one workout.com, we'd love to hear from you. Got a couple of show topics that have been sent in by listeners, so Got the next, I think, next five or six shows lined up and notes starting to be fleshed out. Really excited about that. So if you want to help us fill out, you know, May and June and start getting those ideas of things you want to hear about, send us an email. Um, you know, you never know who we, who we might be able to pull in to talk about a topic or answer some questions. Uh, and we'd love to hear you. Double A-R-O-N at one meal workout.com or just Google one meal workout.com. Anything with that will lead you to us. So uh, with that, gentlemen, Don, Mark. Uh, enjoyed it and um, remember everybody remember this before starting any diet or exercise program listen to a podcast and self-diagnose no it's recommended that you actually consult your healthcare provider recommended it's recommended recommended all year Casualty!